How's you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. Um, we are in week two of our Advent series called The Promise of Better Days and how fitting that a guy named Promise gets to preach in this series. Uh, this series is designed to help us put ourselves in the shoes of those who are experiencing Advent for the very first time. Because we're actually on the opposite end of that spectrum, right? We are living in those promised better days. And because of that, we can oftentimes become unaware of the weight that Advent would have had for the first century Jewish people. That first century Jewish people would be one who were clothed and drenched in a prophetic hope, believing that their Messiah would come and intervene into their world. And their world was, well, was pretty similar to ours. It wasn't easy-go-lucky, everything working like daisies and sunshine. It was pretty messy, chaotic, full of turmoil and confusion, broken and frustrated. And the only thing that could save and could fix what they were experiencing was for something like a Messiah to come. And so the prophecies that had been made centuries before, they were in anticipation, waiting for that day. And the gospel writer, Matthew, one of the disciples, uh, he provides us the birth narrative of Jesus. But more than that, he lays out for us a logical sequence, revealing and unveiling just who the Messiah would be, but also something even cooler, what that Messiah would mean for those people then and for you and me this morning. Now, last week, Pastor Andrew kicked off our series by examining the detailed account from Matthew. Um, and of course, just to remind us, Matthew is speaking predominantly to a Jewish audience, which means that they'd be very, very familiar with biblical prophecy and old promises. And it's in this account of the birth story of Jesus that Matthew reveals that Jesus born would be the fulfillment of the hope that they had longed for. He pulls from uh, the, the text in Isaiah 7, some, some words that we might know. It says that the virgin will conceive and will bear a son and you will give him the name Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. Now, to a people who are heavy with hope for a Messiah to come, this was massive to them. Jesus would be that Messiah. God would come and be with them. It would be everything to that audience. What Matthew was actually saying is that what had been lost in Eden, the closeness and nearness of God, was now on the verge of being reestablished for God's people. God was no longer at a distance. He wasn't just, uh, his presence was no longer just going to be in a temple or in an Ark of the Covenant or in some tabernacle, but it would be dwelling with you and with me. It would be with us to stay that was big for them. God walking incarnate in flesh for his people, even more available to them. That's the hope that they're anticipating for. And, and Matthew doesn't just stop there. We get to chapter two. Matthew ends up building a bit more. And I'm actually really, really excited about this passage. I found it very, very fun to study and to understand. And I can't wait for you guys to see that Matthew just doesn't say that God is with us. But what is God going to do when he's with us? What's that going to be like? How is God going to be like? And Matthew chapter two picks up there. So if we turn your eyes to the screen, we'll read it here. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? 
In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And it's a similar vibe to what we read about last week. Matthew, once again, is pulling from an Old Testament prophet. Like Isaiah, he's pulling from the book of Micah. Micah was also an 8th century prophet, living around the same time as Isaiah. Micah was living around the same time as Isaiah, a contemporary of his. They would have been both prophesying to the same group of people. If you remember correctly, Israel had been divided and split. There was the 10 tribes that formed the northern kingdom, called the northern kingdom. And then there was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that formed the southern kingdom of Judah. Micah and Isaiah are both prophesying this. And actually what happens here is what Isaiah has started and said about a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a child Micah is actually picking up on that and explaining to us just what that child is going to be, who he's going to be, and how his existence is going to impact his people permanently. Let's look at Micah to get a bit more of an understanding of the whole of what that passage says. So looking at Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 6, it says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who is ruler over Israel." whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return and join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. And then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And catch this. And he will be our peace. See, this passage has so much in it. There's so many threads to unravel, but I want to focus on what I see as the three main motifs or themes in this passage. There's the small, the ruler, and the redemption. So in this whole passage, three big things Micah is pulling out is there's a small, there's a ruler, and there's a redemption. And he relates it kind of like this. God is going to intervene in their world. God is going to act. He's going to act in some small way, seemingly. It's going to be out of something small that a great ruler is going to come and impact that entire area. And that ruler's way of ruling will be something new and unexpected. But in that rule, he will usher in their redemption. Now, Micah speaks this, and this is deeply encouraging because for the people that are hearing this, their context is that they have the Assyrians who are waiting to attack them and destroy their cities. And the prophecy actually says not just the Assyrians, but after the Assyrians destroy them, then the Babylonians eventually will come. It's not a pretty time to be in that nation. It's war, it's attack, it's dangerous, and they are scared and frustrated. So when you hear that a Messiah is coming, one will save you, it bubbles up in them a hope. And and Matthew is hoping that they would see that Jesus being born in Bethlehem, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So Matthew sets the scene, right? He talks about Herod, and Herod is the king. Herod is king, but he's kind of like proxy king because he's not really Jewish. He's been placed there by the Romans, so, you know, he might be a little bit insecure. And he hears that another king is going to come, so obviously Herod is a bit threatened and frustrated, and he gathers together those who might understand the prophecy well. He gathers all of them together in a room, and he says, ask them the million-dollar question, where? 
right? Where is this going to happen? Not because he wants to go and hang out. Like he has, probably has some, some bad things on his mind. Where is this going to take place? And, and they point him to that prophecy and they tell him that it will take place in the little town of Bethlehem, which leads us to our very first theme, the small. See, both of the passages in Micah and in Matthew build and begin around this time of Bethlehem. This town of Bethlehem is not uh, random. It's actually a location that's intentional to signal and reveal characteristics about who the Messiah actually would be. So why is Micah using Bethlehem? It's probably the question Herod is asking because Bethlehem in reality is kind of small. It's not important. Nothing great is coming from there. It's not an economic powerhouse. It's not a good military space. There's nothing really great about Bethlehem. It doesn't have a big population. It's not like the capital. Like, why Bethlehem of all places? Bethlehem is small. It's a place that has more sheep than people. It's like the equivalent of New Zealand. Yikes. But that reality somewhat is what veils the prophecy from the people and blinds them. Because the first century Jewish readers would have known about this prophesied location. But they would expect that their, their king that's coming to save them would come from somewhere of more importance, somewhere more strategic, somewhere more fitting of a ruler or of a king, somewhere of honor and benefit. Not Bethlehem. Bethlehem is too small. And for that reason, the prophetic didn't match with their perspective. And although they knew the location, they didn't go and see the birth. Think about that. They knew the prophecies. They could read it and tell you where it's going. But because they had a different perspective and a different expectation, we don't read about any of them going and seeing the birth of their promised Messiah. Because the location was small, the small. But the small would have significance. It would tie back to the greatest Jewish dynastic family. See, there was once a small brother, the smallest of a bunch of brothers, and he grew up in the small town of Bethlehem, and this small brother in this small town would end up rising and ruling and reigning over a nation in, a, in an odd fashion, a bit different than what's expected. He wouldn't be the first choice for anyone. Of course, I'm speaking of David, son of Jesse. Matthew would see that connection between David and Jesus, and he would see that Jesus is a type of David. And if Jesus is a type of David, well, what are the two things that David is most famously known for? He's a shepherd, and he's a ruler. He's a shepherd ruler. And Micah would use this very language in making the connection between that great past king and an even greater coming Messiah. King David would stand as a bit of an archetype for what it means to be a shepherd and a ruler. And if this prophecy is true, then the hope is not just hope. It is great hope. It is very promising hope. Because when David was in power, remember the stories. David was winning battles after battles. And there were songs. David killed his thousands. Saul, or David killed... David killed 10,000, but Saul only killed 1,000. David was a great, strong warrior. When he was in power, he was a man close to God's own heart. He was a man that loved God. And it was so evident for the people to see that when David was in power, man, God was for us. God was with us. God was moving on our behalf. The presence of God was available. It was the best of days. It was the golden age of Israel when David was in power. So if this prophecy is true, one coming like David would bring absolute hope to a people who are in a tense position. Man, if this prophecy was true, 
It was a prophecy of a promise of greater days, of a great ruler to come and to rule for God's people again. So we have to ask ourselves when we look in this passage, what will that ruler be like? He'll be like David. He'll be a shepherd and a ruler, but exactly what will he be like? So Micah would describe this ruler in a very particular word. If we look back at verse four, he'll say this, speaking of the ruler, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Shepherd his flock. This great ruler, I mean, remember guys, there are people wanting to attack and destroy this nation. This great ruler that we've been wanting will stand and shepherd his flock. See, Matthew wants us to see through this Micah passage that this idea of a shepherd is going to catch the first century believers off guard. The Messiah coming in the fashion of a son of Bethlehem, yes, from a small place, in the likeness of David, yes, he will rule, but he will rule like a shepherd. I think perhaps this is the reason that the angels go to the shepherds, and they are the first ones to see Jesus when he's born, a shepherd king. And I use that combination of words shepherd and king because it's actually the word that's used for ruling and reigning in this passage. It's different from the expectations because when you're facing such a frustrating time, when you're in the valley, when death might be knocking on the door, the last thing you're looking for is a shepherd. Your expectation and their expectation was pretty militaristic. They wanted a strong king. They wanted a description of someone who would be conquering and reigning, but Micah doesn't give them that. See, what they would prescribe to their situation is not someone described as a shepherd. To put it bluntly, they're wanting peace and restoration. They aren't wanting a shepherd, they're wanting a warrior. Someone to come and bring them peace, to rule over and vanquish all of their enemies, all of the difficulties that they're facing. But this Messiah would be different. This Messiah wouldn't be like the Herods of the world or the Caesars of the world or any other contemporary leader. He is a shepherd king. He comes to rule his people the way that a shepherd rules, leading and guiding his flock, to shepherd the flock of Israel, as it says. And perhaps that is the reason it's so obvious, yet Jesus is missed. Perhaps that's why only non-Jewish wise men are the ones who show up at his birth. They miss what's right in front of their eyes. And I think it's something we have to be careful when our expectations are so vast and so great that we might miss the most precious, the gift that provides the most, the very gift that we need. It was right in front of them and they missed it. The shepherd king Messiah born to them as a little boy in Bethlehem. This is why Matthew connects the birth story with Jesus to the idea of Emmanuel. God is with us as that first promise. And Matthew now explains the how, that God is not just with us, but God is with us like a shepherd is with his flock, like a shepherd with his sheep. This connects and and defines the way that this great Messiah was going to rule. His style of ruling would not be like Herod's. It'd be more closely related to that of Psalm 23, which funny enough is, is written by David born in Bethlehem. And, and, and if God is with us, Like a shepherd, he's with us intimately. He's with us closely. He's watching like a shepherd would to his sheep. And that 
is what provides shalom, and that's what provides peace, and that's what allows them to be secure. You know, I've never seen this. Tell me if, if you disagree. I've, I've never seen sheep going crazy, worried about where their meal's gonna come from, worried about the next step, worried about the change in their location, worried about the weather, worried about provision, worried about you name it. I don't, I don't see anxious sheep. It'd be an interesting sight, but I don't see that. And I think it's because of this, because the sheep know where their protection comes from. It's not up to them. They know where the direction comes from. It's not up to them. They've got a shepherd for that. They know where to go because they follow the shepherd. They know how to get food because they follow the shepherd. Everything that they need, they have a shepherd for that. And it's the same with us. The peace that we need to live securely, we only get from the shepherd. And the shepherd is with us. The hope that we need to keep our heads up, we'll only get from the shepherd. And the shepherd is with us. The comfort and the provision, the direction, the guidance, the patience, all the things that we need, we can only get from the shepherd. And the good news is this, the shepherd is with you. The shepherd is with you to protect, to lead, and to guide. God knows us. The shepherd knows his flock. Every single one of it. Scripture would say that God knows the number of hairs on your head. That might feel like a weird detail, but he just knows you that well. Like there's nothing about you he doesn't know. The shepherd would know the flock. And he walks closely, leading us into green pastures. God has stepped into their world and has stepped into our world, comforting and leading us. And the reality is this, that Advent reminds us that God has now come and there's a great king who leads like a shepherd but has made himself available to us, ruling like a shepherd and giving us the best chance possible. And that's good news. That's, that's hope. It's a precious reality when we can see that this is the promise of Advent, the rule and reign of a shepherd king. Now, there's still quite a bit of stuff in, in this passage that Micah is showing us, and I want to make sure we don't miss it. So I'm going to break it down into three words that are highlighted and emphasized in this latter half of the passage. Micah would speak about a shepherd, which we just talked about in great detail. Uh, he would speak about peace, or the, the Hebrew word shalom. Thirdly, he would speak about securely, or security, living securely. And Micah would connect all three of these things into the single idea that the shepherd is the symbol of peace. And if we have that peace, we can live securely. Hear that again. The shepherd is the symbol of peace. And if we have peace, we can live securely. You know, the flock is at peace if the flock has a shepherd. Because a good shepherd does everything the flock needs provides in every way for the flock to gaze and to live in peace. And Micah would actually say it like this in verse 5, describing the rule and reign of Jesus as, and he will be our peace. Now, I have said two words interchangeably, uh, shalom and peace, and I want to clarify what they mean because shalom is a Jewish word, the, the Hebrew word. Uh, we don't go around saying shalom to everyone, last I checked. Uh, but we do see, say peace and peace is a part of shalom, but shalom is a much wider ordeal. Shalom is maybe one of the biggest concepts within the Jewish scriptures. Shalom is this idea of complete rest. 
Shalom is what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. The Garden of Eden where everything is made right. Where there's actual calm. And there's peace. Shalom is speaking of things as they should be. Things in order. Could you imagine that? How nice it would be. Creation at ease. The idea of being naked and unashamed. Meaning we have no reason to hide. No reason to fear. No reason to constantly look over our shoulder. Nothing to be ashamed of. See, the Jewish people have longed for this existence, this shalom where they could be in this rest, in this peace of God and live their lives to the fullest. And the entire story of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward is humanity's pursuit of entering into God's rest, back into his shalom. And they would desire this, not just theoretically, but may I remind us again, because they have enemies knocking on their door. They would desire peace to be freed from the Roman occupiers in the first century. They would desire rest to be freed from the tensions of broken systems. They would desire for things to be made right in relationships again. They would want full restoration to where sin no longer has a hold on them, but instead they are fully restored in relationship with God. It's the shalom and the peace that makes it possible to live securely. Shalom and peace is the very definition of living securely. You can't live securely without peace, without shalom. This is the point I think Matthew's trying to make here. And it's really critical. Understanding shalom and our pursuit towards that. See, what the audience might have believed, knowing that shalom is such a big deal, is that when the Messiah comes, he will lead us towards our shalom. That's good, right? Like this is, when the Messiah comes, he will lead us to where we can all be at peace, to a state of peace. He will show us how to get to peace. He will give us a path, a way towards peace. But this passage actually offers a revelation that's significantly more powerful, more permanent than that. Jesus comes and doesn't point you to peace. doesn't say peace is that way. Go there. It doesn't give you three easy steps for peace. No, when the Messiah comes, Micah says, he will be our shalom. He will be our peace. Peace isn't found in the perfect circumstance. Peace is found in a person. And that person has come so that you and I can live securely, to live in confidence. And the truth is this, we will wear ourselves out. We will drain our hopes if we believe that peace is a status of world events. If peace is just getting all of our affairs in order, just ridding ourselves of any trouble. No, peace can actually exist when there's trouble around us. Think back to the garden, Eden, Shalom, but there's still a snake. Think back to this beautiful imagery of Psalm 23. Our great shepherd is leading us, yes, into green pastures, but through valleys of the shadow of death and darkness. Peace isn't a setting. It's a person. Recognize that we will have trouble in this world. We're all going to have that. It's guaranteed to every single one of us. But we can still be at peace and live securely because peace is our shepherd that's guiding us. Peace is a person that is available to us. Peace is Jesus. And here's how this news gets a little bit better. So lean in. 
we don't have to go looking for peace anymore. Because of Advent, we don't have to go searching for peace. We don't have to wonder where peace is. Peace has actually come to you. It's interesting, it's not even like a 50-50 thing. Like he came all the way down, 100% of the way. Peace is here. It's really close, it's really close. It's intimately close to us. Peace has come and is available to you already. He has already begun a restoration in us. Shalom doesn't mean an end to our problems, but the profundity of our peace is recognized when we can be at rest, even in the turmoil of a messy world. Where we can be, as you've heard us preach over this past year, a non-anxious presence in the chaos of this world. Advent stands as a reminder that because Emmanuel, because God is with us, we can live securely. Because he has given us a shepherd to rule and to guide and to walk with us, we can now live where we can take a breath and not have to have every decision and every behavior a response to fear. We can live unashamed and confidently. Peace is what will bring us our security. And we have this peace, we have this shalom because God has come so close to us. I, I do recognize that it isn't always the way we feel. I recognize that hard days are hard days and hard seasons are hard seasons. I've definitely had a fair share of them as well. But we live now in the promised better days that they were so longing for where the fullness of peace is so accessible. Although we have moments of fear, Advent means that we can choose to slow down, to take a breath, and purposely remind ourselves that peace is available to you. In this situation, peace is available to you. Peace in the form of a good shepherd king who knows us, who knows our moments, who walks with us, who is sufficient enough to be everything we need to provide us the strength for every single day, for every single journey, for every single challenge we face, we have peace in the form of that shepherd king who leads us through valleys, through, remember, through the valleys. The valleys aren't permanent, he is. The trials will come, no one's immune from that, but our peace in Jesus is already here and it will, I promise you this, it will long outlast any set of obstacles that's in front of us now. So hold on to the gift of Advent, to the gift of peace. For those of us here today who are just worn down because it's been a challenging, it's been a really challenging three years, hold on to your peace. To those of us who are looking for employment, hold on to your peace. For those of us in broken relationships and families that have odd dynamics and things are extremely challenging, hold on to your peace. For those of us who are in need, hold on to your peace. For those of us who don't know how do we operate in a future version of Hong Kong that's changing geopolitically or through this COVID thing, hold on to your peace. Hold on to your peace in your moments of darkness. Hold on to your peace in your moments of trials. Hold on to your peace when you're broken and when you're frustrated and when you're angry and very soon you'll realize that it's actually your peace that's holding on to you. Your peace is holding on to you. Hold on to your peace. This Advent season, I wonder where God is showing you and me areas that we need to invite his peace to rule and reign again in our lives.
What are the areas of struggle, if we were to be honest? Where are the areas of doubt, of frustration, and of confusion? Where things are hurt, the sore subjects, the things we don't tell anyone about. God is asking us to think about those places, bring them back to mind for each of us, and invite his peace to reign there. There is no hopelessness when you have this shepherd. Your despair doesn't win when you have this shepherd. It's available to us now, his peace, and we don't have to go looking for it. It's chosen to come and be with us. We can sit in this tension of already because things, you know, peace is here but not yet because everything isn't perfect, knowing that peace has come, but there's a promise of better days where peace will also come, where peace will be, where peace will cease all of our oppression, all of the darkness, all of the frustration, all of the things that ail us, where darkness and sin will be forever vanquished. There's this beautiful picture at the end of our scriptures in Revelation where the only reality that we have is shalom, is that rest, is that wholeness, is that restoration. And I believe God is wanting us to take some time during this Advent season and speak peace and release peace to remember that his peace is available to us. So as, as the band comes up, will we, can we all stand? I know we've done this already today, but if you just open your hands, just open your hands. If you are in need of peace in any area of your life, there's any area where you feel like you are lacking peace, we serve a God who doesn't lack. He'll give you abundantly more. If there are any areas that you are confused and you need his peace that passes all understanding, it's available to us now. So Jesus, we come before you knowing who you are. You're not just a baby born 2,000 plus years ago. You're not just God with us. But because you're God with us, you shepherd us. And the way that you shepherd us and rule us brings us shalom and brings us peace. You are all that we need, God. So we just call upon your spirit now to start doing what only your spirit can do in that loving, kind, compassionate, shepherd way without condemnation, but with restoration in mind, will you bring your peace into our lives, oh God? Will you speak your peace over our situations, over our fears, over the darkest areas of our lives, over the things where we feel like we've run out of hope, Lord? Will you be our hope? Will you speak your peace to us again, God? Will you remind us that you are peace, that your spirit makes it well, that if you are there, we can go another day? That if you are there, we can take another step. Lord, speak to us. Show us what areas we need to surrender to your peace, God. And may we be a people very much present in this world, but ruled by your peace, living securely, living confidently, living on purpose. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name.